My name's Daniel. I am one of the pastors here at Aletheia Church. And this morning, we are going to be in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. Over the last couple of weeks, we have handed out scripture journals that look like this. And if you have not yet received one of these and would like one of these totally free, we would like you to raise your hand. And this will be a place that you can follow along and take notes today. So there's no shame. If you don't have one, just go ahead and raise your hand, and we will get you one to follow along with us. This is something you can take with you each and every week uh, to your gospel community. It will help you in your study of God's Word, and it is just our free gift to you, okay? And you can turn in there. You'll see the scriptures on the left-hand part of the page, and there's a place for you to take notes on the right side of the page. Okay, in today's passage, we are going to be introduced to a concept known as being filled with the Spirit. So with this concept and with this message, I have four objectives for us today that you will see on the screen. So if you're a note taker, here's where you are going to begin taking notes. And if you're going, I don't have a pen, look in the seat back in front of you, okay? The four objectives for today is that we would, one, begin to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Number two, that we would not be afraid to be filled with the Spirit. Number three, we would actually seek to be filled with the Spirit. And number four, we would actually experience being filled with the Holy Spirit. The title of today's message is Empowered by the Spirit. Now, we're using the word empowered as a key word in our series right now in the book of Acts that we have titled, Go and Tell. Because right now, here at the beginning of the book of Acts, we see God empowering the church. But if we weren't sticking with that theme, I would have phrased and messaged this, um, titled this message, The Experience of the Spirit. Now, I want to be honest with you, this is one of the more difficult topics to handle in Scripture. In case you're asking why, it's because people's experience of being filled with the Spirit varies greatly. There's a lot of confusion in our world today about how one should go about trying to experience the filling of the Spirit, as well as determining what is a valid or not valid experience of being filled with the Spirit. So let me give you an example of, of the difficulty of preaching this message and then just moving on and not, and not coming back to it and diving in even deeper over the coming weeks. You, you know and you recognize and realize in life we often divide people into categories. Well, one of the ways that people get divided into categories according to personality tests today is that, and we're going to use our dividing line aisle right here, is that on one, in, in one group of people we have thinking, rational, logic-based people, and in another group we can put people who are more feelings-based, emotion-oriented, and, and they strive after experiences. And each of these people would then approach being filled with the Spirit in a very different way. We know that according to personality types, like Myers-Briggs, for example, they divide people into two categories, thinkers and feelers. But we can't think of approaching the Holy Spirit in that way, and we can't put people in boxes that way when we come to this topic. So rather than thinking of people and just putting them in boxes of thinkers and feelers, we got to realize we're more along a spectrum, okay? So if we take 
what is the divide here, and there's two boxes. We're actually going to separate it and put it on a spectrum. So just imagine a big 180-degree rainbow over my head to where on one side you may have the most thinking, rational, logic person in the world who is void of all feeling and emotions on one side, and on the far end you would have the emotional feeling person who is totally void of any thinking, rational, logic in any way, shape, or form. Now, we know that neither one of those purposes exists, but every one of you is somewhere in between those two ends of the spectrum of how you are going to think about life and how you are going to approach being filled with the Holy Spirit. This third member of the Trinity who is co-equal with the Father and Son, but is not, not the Father of the, and the Son, He's co-eternal with the Father and the Son. He's the comforter, Jesus calls him. He's the one that Jesus promised to send after he died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. This invisible man, so to speak, who is mysteriously working throughout the world, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come, and is alive in the heart of every single follower of Jesus. So when we come to the Holy Spirit, the, the, the person who is a little more on the experiential, feelings-based, intuitive side, they get really excited. And maybe you, you've been to what we would call a Pentecostal church. And if you've ever walked into a Pentecostal church, especially by accident, uh, you might be really shocked and surprised at your experience. Because you walk in and you see these people who are really loud and really exuberant. And just according to your flavor and taste, they're a little too excited about worshiping this guy named Jesus. If you've ever been to one of these services where they get a little extra carried away, you might see them running around waving flags during the service. And you're thinking to yourself, have they confused this Sunday morning event with a touchdown being scored by the Florida Gators? Because they are so excited, they are so happy, they are running around. I have never in my life seen people act like this in church. And if you were to ever talk to one of these more thinking, I mean more, more feelings-based, experiential believers, you might hear them use phrases like, God told me. Or while I was praying this morning, I felt a prompting from the Holy Spirit. And you, if you're a more logic-based, rational, reasonable person, only believing what you can see and verify, then you're probably at least on the inside, kind of giving them this side-eyed stare, thinking, man, how soon can I get away from this person? Because this is not my experience at all with God and the Holy Spirit. But yet, there's something inside of you that says, man, I wish God spoke to me that way. I wish I had a relationship with Jesus where, and like I'm having a conversation with another person, his spirit that he promised would actually speak deep into the depths of my heart and give me wisdom and guidance and counsel so I would know what I should do in this life as I try to honor him. Now, what often happens with people who are a little more logic-based, a little more reason-based, is they, they have a different trinity than the rest of us, and it's not always on purpose. Because the Bible speaks of the trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
But oftentimes, being afraid of the Holy Spirit, the more rational, logical, thinking-based person swaps out the Holy Spirit for the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. And that becomes their trinity. And they reason and justify this, and they say, well, the Holy Spirit inspired the Holy Bible, so it's okay for me to swap these two entities out. But that is not how Scripture instructs us to engage with the Holy Spirit. Scripture says there is a Holy Spirit alive and at move in the world today. Now, based on our common experience here at Aletheia Church, even if it's your first time, you didn't see any hooting and hollering and shouting at all. And so you know, just because we, uh, we, we go through books of the Bible, we're very expository in our messages, that we try to mine out the meaning of the text, we lean in a thinking, rational-based way in our services and in our body. Now, what I am not saying is that's how we should lean, all right? I'm saying that's just who we are as a people, and like attracts like. So if you're a little more artistic, creative type, please don't run away. We need you to stay, okay? Because the, the body of Christ values diversity. Throughout the scriptures, it talks about the radical inclusivity among the gifts that God gives his people. So if you are an artistic type, we need more of you feelings-based, emotions-based, experiential-seeking people so that you can rub off on us who get a little stuck in our rut of being rational and logic all the time. We want to be a church that loves God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we also want to continually live in a way where we are experiencing the empowering and filling of God's Holy Spirit. And these two things are not mutually exclusive. So if you're wondering what we hope to become and what our theological position here is at Aletheia Church, it can be summed up with this phrase on the screen. Charismatic with a seatbelt. All right? Here's what that means. We believe that all the gifts are in play. We believe that God is still at work in the world today in the exact same way that he was when the Holy Spirit was given to humanity. All right? We believe that all the gifts that you read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in the list in Romans 12, and the list in Ephesians chapter 4, these are all still in play today. However... We recognize and realize, according to Scripture's instruction, we need to do these things with order. So the best visual that I can give you is this. If you've ever been to Disney World, if you've ever been to a, a theme park and gotten on a roller coaster, as you are about to get on the ride and go on this experience... They tell you for you to maximize your fun and for you to be safe along the journey, you need to put on the seat belt and you need to keep your hands and your feet inside the vehicle at all time so that you don't lose a limb or your head along the way, right? So that's what it means to be charismatic with the seat belt. We believe that God is still in the work doing this today, but yet there is structure and order to how we go about this and this is given to us in Scripture. Now, all this big intro leads us into today's passage. So, if you would look with me and open up those scripture journals to Acts chapter 2, um, verse 1, that's as far as we're going to get in the first little section. 
when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So let me explain to you what is happening in this moment. Let me give you a little bit of of Bible context and a little bit of Bible history. If you are familiar with the big overall story of the Bible, you know that at one point in time, the people of Israel were enslaved to the Egyptians. And God had told Pharaoh to let his people go. And he would not do that, so eventually, after ten attempts... God sends the death angel to wipe out the firstborn son of the Egyptians. But he told the Jewish people that if they would sacrifice a pure and spotless lamb, again foreshadowing Jesus Christ, that if they would put the blood of that sacrificed lamb on their doorpost, the death angel would pass over them and no harm would come to the firstborn in their family. And so in, that, in, in this event, we call the Passover. The event that Jesus celebrated with his disciples the Thursday night before he went to the crucifixion on Friday is in commemoration of this event. Fifty days from that event was something called the Feast of Weeks. There's another pilgrimage festival called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's three pilgrimage festivals if you want to know, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. So, this day in the Jewish calendar that we're going to see where all of these Jews are inside of Jerusalem has been on the calendar for centuries. They didn't get the name Pentecost from just because it's the Holy Spirit falling on this time. It just literally means 50 days, and it's the 50th day from the Passover. So God, in His sovereign ordination over time and over space and over humanity, had put this festival in. Jesus had told them for 40 days, here's what I want you to do now to go and be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Now go in the house and wait and pray and gather until power comes upon you. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit fills the room and fills them in this moment. And so you can see there is this this conflux of time where God has brought everything together in this moment under his strategic plan that he has had for all time. And scholars tell us there were up to 200,000 people in Jerusalem on this day. So on this day, when Pentecost arrives and they're all together in one place, it says this in verses 2, 3, and 4. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I want you to notice, if you look in your journal, look at the very first word of verses 2, 3, and 4. It all begins with and. So there are three things that we must draw out of this text, three major things that happen in this moment. The first one is a sound like a mighty rushing wind fills the entire house. Now we're going to notice over in verse 5, the sound was so loud the entire city heard it. So maybe it was something like a sonic boom. I don't know. But they attest to having heard this sound throughout Jerusalem. But you need to know and understand the significance of what it would have been in the Jewish mind to those who were in the house and would have experienced this sound inside the house. 
there is a relation, a correlation to Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 35. In the moment when Moses first erects the tabernacle, so if you're not, if you're not familiar, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people worship God first at the tabernacle, which was like a, mo- a mobile tent, and then eventually Solomon builds the permanent structure, the temple, uh, several hundreds of years later. Okay, so But when the tabernacle was first built, it says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is something that would have resonated with them, this sound and this experience that, they are, that is taking place in this moment. Furthering this illustration between the tabernacle and the temple and the transition that's taking place as we move from the old covenant into the new covenant, into the new working of God, is that divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on them. And here is where it gets really key because in this moment, they would have recognized and realized, they would have associated fire with sacrifices being offered at the temple. So there's a a, a double force to this imagery to show this tabernacle and temple imagery. But for so long, where God's spirit and presence had dwelt inside the tabernacle, inside the temple, that presence of God had now moved. And where had he moved? He had moved to them. That the temple was now truly mobile. Because the temple was no longer a structure where you went to worship. Because when Jesus was crucified, it says the curtain that separated God's presence from all of humanity was ripped from top to bottom. And just so you know, that's a a big significance because how does a curtain rip from top to bottom? It rips top to bottom, making access for you and I. And so God's presence now indwells us individually as human beings for those of us who are believers, who are followers of Jesus Christ. So the temple has become truly mobile. And Scripture uses and catches this imagery in other places to help further what is being expressed here. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, when talking about sexual immorality, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I just want you to kind of just just breathe that in for a moment. Because I think too often we just pass this over that God is actually dwelling in you. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. Whether you're skeptical, whether you're like, "Mm, I don't know about this, the Scripture unequivocally declares that God, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who died upon a cross for your sins, is dwelling inside of you right now. And everywhere you go, you are a 
you are a temple carrying his image and his presence into the world. The third and is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the verse that we're going to spend the most time unpacking this morning. But before I do unpack verse 4, let's just read the rest of the passage because what is said in verse 13 connects really strongly to what happens in verse 4. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. So remember, everybody's in town, up to 200,000 people. The event of the, at the house was heard throughout the entire city of Jerusalem. And what's going on is getting everyone's attention. And people are coming, and they are checking, and they're saying, hey, what is going on? What is the commotion here? And they come up, and they hear these Galileans, which is the Bible's way of saying backcountry hillbillies. All right? We hear these backcountry hillbillies Perfectly speaking our language. This is the equivalent of me right now with my Alabama accent speaking beautiful, perfect, fluent French. Yes, I used to speak French when I was a missionary in Africa, but there was nothing beautiful, perfect, or fluent about it. This past Friday night when we had 20 international students in our home, there were two girls from the south of France. My French sounded nothing like their French. But I could have sat there and listened to those two girls talk in French all day long. It was the most beautiful, eloquent, just amazing to hear them. And it was so, it, they, they were so caught off guard that who is this backcountry hillbillies? Who is this group of people? And they are perfectly speaking our language. Now notice the purpose of filling in tongues. The result is what? They were telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. Remember, I've told you, we always have to pay attention to the principle of first in Scripture. So when something happens for the first, what we see there, we have to pay attention because it influences the rest of what we see in Scripture. So let me say, the purpose of speaking in tongues is to proclaim the mighty works of God. You should always equate those two things together when you are thinking about speaking in tongues, of being filled with the Spirit, for that is its purpose. Now, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking. Now, now, so notice there's two groups of people, and you, and you want to be the first group of people. When, when something happens, 
When, when something's going on, you want to be the person to go, hey, what does that mean? What, what's going on here? Because that shows that, that you are at least willing to consider that, that there may need to be change, that God may be up to something in the world. But notice the other group, they don't even ask any questions, they just mock. Now, let, let me say something to you about mockers, mockers and skeptics. They mock because they do not understand. So just realize that when you are speaking to someone who might mock you for your faith, they mock you because they do not understand. And you must remember that though you are to proclaim with boldness the gospel message, that you must pray with even more fervency that the Holy Spirit would give them understanding. Because the person that you are talking to who mocks you as a believer, who is not a Christian, you have to remember this is not a bad person you are trying to make good. This is a dead person you are trying to bring to life. We cannot forget those categories when we address people with the gospel of Jesus. For the Bible says that you are either dead or you are alive in Christ. For those are the categories by which we exist. And they mock them, saying, they are filled with new wine. So you notice back in verse 4, filled with the Spirit. Verse 13, filled with new wine. So the question is, who's right? Are they filled with the Spirit or filled with wine? Now, you're going to see in the passage next week, Peter's going to say, guys, come on. It's 9 a.m. They haven't had time to drink that much yet. And they said, you couldn't say that here on campus. It's like, no, it's game day. People have been started way before 9 a.m., okay? <laughs> so it's totally possible here, right? But we're going to use this illustration because you need to understand the, 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 the closest correlation between being filled with the Spirit is being filled with wine. It's the one you're all going to understand the most, and it's the one the Bible uses on more than one occasion. So please don't think that I'm up here promoting sin. I don't want any emails. I don't want any comment cards about it. Okay. Now, I know that we're in a college town, all right? So I'm just, but I'm going to go on the assumption that no one in here has ever been under the influence of alcohol, okay? So I'm going to explain to you what the influence of alcohol does to a, a human being. You drink alcohol. The more alcohol you drink, the more under control of the alcohol you become. No matter much how you try to fight it, no matter much how you, hard you try to resist it, you can't stop your speech from being slurred if you continue to drink alcohol. If you continue to drink alcohol, you will eventually black out, pass out, and not remember things if you come completely and totally under its control by consuming more and more and more. Paul understood this illustration. That's why in Ephesians 5.18, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He says there's two types of spirits. One you should be filled with, one you should not be filled with. Okay? So he's saying it's a sin to get drunk. Just in case, in case that is not apparent to everybody, if you're new to this whole Jesus thing, it does not say that alcohol is against the rules. It just says that you cannot get drunk, okay? 
Now, some of you are going, oh, well, I'm underage. That totally gives me the freedom to be able to drink. No, the Bible also says something in Romans 13 about being submissive to the government. So no matter how dumb you think it is that you can vote but you can't drink, the Bible says if you want to be a good witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to abstain until you're 21 because your gospel witness and your obedience to Jesus matters more than you having a little bit of alcohol in this three-year span while you're in school. Okay? You got, and so just so you know, if you're underage and you choose to drink alcohol, though the alcohol is not the sin, by not obeying the government, one, you sin, and, but you also make other people complicit in your sin by getting them to get the alcohol for you. All right? So just think about that. It's not just you that you are sinning against. You are causing other people to sin against God as well. All right? That's my two-minute old man soapbox. Okay? So... Be filled with the Spirit. And the reason you are encouraged to be filled with the Spirit is because you want to be under His control. Now understand when Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, make sure you got that in your notes, that be filled is, is the, the tense that says it's really be continually filled. All right? You, you, imagine it this way. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, it's alcohol. It's, I'm thinking like a glass, okay? Don't think of it of being filled with the Spirit as a glass. Think of it as a balloon, all right? Because a balloon can continually expand, okay? So if you are continually filled with the Spirit, you can continually grow and, and be filled with the Spirit. Now, you are going to have some leaks in your life that, that cause you to not be filled with the Spirit, but yet you can continue to expand the balloon and be full, filled with the Spirit, but yet through the power of the Spirit, you can uh, stop up some of those leaks and become more and more full of the Spirit. But there is no capacity to which you can actually pop the balloon and become too full of the Spirit. No matter how mature or full you get, there is almost, there's always more filling that can take place take place in your life through God's Holy Spirit. So, you want to be full. You need many fillings. You need constant filling in your life. So now we're going to ask, ask and answer two questions. What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? And does being filled with the Spirit always result in speaking in tongues? We're going to answer the second question first. Does filling with the Spirit always result in speaking in tongues? This is one of those that I, that I struggled with because I have no idea what your experience and your upbringing is. I don't know if this is something that's still on the forefront of, of modern Christianity. I know it was a big deal when, when, when I was coming up, this whole idea of seeking a second blessing. Okay, so if you've ever heard language about being baptized in the Spirit or, or seeking a second blessing, this is something that at least was heavily promoted in a lot of churches, and I know is still promoted in a lot of churches today. And some churches that, that you go to are going to tell you that the second blessing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes after your initial conversion where you receive the Holy Spirit as the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. All right. Now, Scripture clearly teaches that when you become a believer, you automatically receive the Holy Spirit. But some people tell you there's a second baptism, a second blessing that you should, that you should seek. In this, 
I want to tell you, this is, this is not the typical language of Scripture. Also, people will tell you that the evidence of this, this second blessing is you speaking in tongues. Okay? For clarity's sake, I will make it as brief and as simple as I can. The gift of tongues is still in play. Now, when we talk about speaking in tongues, people will talk about this in two different avenues. They use the same phrase, but there's two different things. There's one type of speaking in tongues where it's the person speaking another language, all right? That's clear, that's an actual, it's French, it's German, it's, Chinese, you know, it's Cantonese, it's Mandarin, whatever, whatever it is, the Spirit causes someone to, to, speak, to speak in that way. But there's another type of speaking in tongues, which some people will call the kind of the tongues of angels. And it's, a, it's an unintelligible speech that you are speaking with your spirit. And the Bible validates that, that it's a, a legitimate language that where you are speaking with your spirit to God, but it's bypassing your mind, but you are, it, it's a connection between you and God. And there are people in this church who have the gift of speaking in tongues, but there are many people in this church who do not have this. But yet in the early church, this became like, oh, this was the show-off gift that everybody wanted. Everybody was looking for it, and then everybody was speaking in tongues. Let me just say, if you tell you, if you ever go to a church where everybody is speaking in tongues out loud, I will just tell you that is a church that is not practicing what the Bible clearly teaches about how we are to speak in tongues in the gathered assembly. So let me show you one passage real quick that says not everybody gets this gift. So just in case somebody tells you, no, you got to have it. No, you don't. And I'll show you where that is. And then let me also show you how it is to be done in order. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11 up on the screen, um, you will see Paul writing, uh, writing to the church in Corinth. He says this in verses 4 through 11. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And he goes on this long thing about how we're one body with many members because this was dividing the church. Again, as the church becomes more diverse, it's harder to hold it together. That's why Paul keeps saying, no, you are one body in Christ. You're diverse because God is making you diverse. Accept this and enjoy this. Don't be torn apart by it. But look at what he says in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. And he's going to ask a series of questions, which you can tell the obvious answer to respond by the audience is no. Are all people apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And the more excellent way, if you've ever been to a wedding, is 
1 Corinthians 13. I think it's so funny that this is the passage always makes it into almost every single wedding, and it has nothing to do with marriage whatsoever, but about keeping the church together in the midst of them arguing about the gift of speaking in tongues. All right? So that's the context the next time you're at a wedding of why they're, why they're saying all these things. Okay? Now, I go into this detail because one of our values here at Aletheia Church is beyond Aletheia. We know that we are not holding on to you forever. Our job is to, to engage, encourage, equip, and empower you as much as we can for the time that you're here because we are sending you out in the world as missionaries, as disciples who will hopefully make other disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our goal and plan for everyone in this room, whether you're here one time or you're here a hundred times. That's our goal. So we know that you at some point in time are going to go and check out other churches. So we want you to know and and help you in this searching out for a church. So when it comes to speaking in tongues, if you walk into one where everyone is speaking, just look what it says in verses 26 through 28 of chapter 14. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn. So one at a time, just like you learned in elementary school, okay? And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. All right? So if you're in a room full of people and everybody's speaking in tongues, time out. We have, you know... We are, we are playing outside the boundaries of the field as God has designed it. There's something going on here. Now, I've heard people justified in some crazy ways. But, no, it's very clear. This, this is a very black and white issue in Scripture, okay? So, tongues is legitimate. I told people in my previous church in Seattle, if anybody speaks in tongues in the middle of the service, bring it on. But you just need to know, if you do it, I'm going to say, where's the interpretation? Who's going to interpret And if somebody interprets that as a word from God, we'll listen. And then the elders decide if that that was a legitimate word from God. But if you speak in tongues in the service, which no one ever did, thank goodness, all right? But no one ever did that in the middle of my sermon, so it didn't freak me out. But it's one of those things where if if you did it and nobody interpreted it, I'd say, that was not from God. That may have been bad chili, but let's just move on with the message, okay? So we just kind of move on from there. So here's just a brief example. If you ever get in this discussion with somebody, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 lays it out that being filled with the Spirit does not necessarily result in speaking in tongues. Okay? Uh, There are some other instances in Scripture where it happens. We see it in Acts chapter 8. You're going to see it in Acts chapter 10 and in Acts chapter 19. But you need to know this is a strategic move on God's part because the first time it happens is with the Jewish people in Acts chapter 8. It's the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were the half-Gentiles, half-Jews, and then Acts chapter 10 is to the Gentiles. So God is just setting a precedent that, one, it goes to the Jews first, then to the half-breeds, as they would have been known, and then to the fully Gentiles. It's just a progressive movement, but it's not the example that all people are to speak in tongues once they are filled with the Spirit, okay? So that will help you uh, decipher this out. Okay, so now making the turn to the end, the big turn to the end, where we're really going to make some application to our lives today. What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? What is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit? This is where I just want you to kind of just pause for a second and be like, all right, I need to pay attention to this. The, the reason God has me here in this time, in this place today, is for this last section. 
Because here is where it's going to move from being in our head that we've opened up this passage, and now we got to make the, most, the longest journey in human history, the 18 inches from your head to your heart. All right? And then you got to move it from your heart out into your hands and feet into the world. And here's where the rubber meets the road. So, these are not all the evidences of the Spirit. But I'm going to give you three that most practically apply to us today as Aletheia Church. The first evidence of the Spirit is one, life in the Spirit. We speak of this as salvation. This, as I, as I read this passage, you are going to see that Paul is going to talk about there are two categories. There are people who are in the flesh and there are people who are in the Spirit. I want you to ask yourself, am I in the flesh or am I in the spirit? Now, not as you are necessarily walking and living, but in the category itself, are you in the flesh or in the spirit? Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Many people call Romans chapter 8 the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so here he's presenting the gospel. He's saying, look, if you were a follower of Jesus, there is now no condemnation for you. Because the Holy Spirit is in you, you have been signed, sealed, and delivered. That for the rest of your life, though, though the devil may speak horrible and terrible things to you in your greatest moments of weakness, you should never fall under the accusation of condemnation ever again. Conviction, yes. Condemnation, no. Because you have been set free. Jesus Christ has come. He's lived the life that you should have lived. He has died the death that you should have died. He has, he has called you his own. He has adopted you. He has chosen you. And nothing that can ever happen in this life could ever separate you from his bond with you. For you are a child of the king. Well, this is the reason we call the gospel the good news. Because God has done all the work on your behalf. He has chosen you. He has made you his own. And there is no way you could ever get out of his grasp. Because let me say to you, if you could lose your salvation, you would have lost it a long time ago. I would have lost mine a long time ago. It is the Holy Spirit that holds us fast to Jesus Christ. Having presented that good news, he now gets into the heart of this flesh and the spirit conversation. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies though his, through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. We are in debt, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, as I have read this passage, as I have explained the gospel in the last few minutes, can you say that you felt the Spirit alive in you? Do you categorically know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are in the Spirit? That you are in Christ and that Christ lives in you? If so, what evidence would you give? What evidence would you share with someone that, yes, I know that I am a follower of Jesus because... dot, dot, dot. Do not leave here without settling that question without talking to someone about this for eternal life is at stake whether you are in the flesh or in the spirit a second evidence of the spirit in your life if you are looking for some is victory over sin using the same language talking to the church in galatia paul says this in Galatians chapter 5. He encourages them and exhorts them by saying, But I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, I want you to notice as we get into this, there, you, are, you are either in one category or the other. You are in the flesh or in the Spirit. Now, if you are in the flesh, you cannot walk in the Spirit. But if you are in the Spirit, you can walk in the flesh as well as walk in the Spirit. And Paul says as much in this passage. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And he's warning Christians, I warn you Christians, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, so what he's not saying is, 
that if you as a Christian mess up and do one of these things and, and sin against God, that you're not going to inherit the God. What he's saying is the people who are in the flesh, this is how they act. This is how they live, contrary to God's law and contrary to God's instruction. And the people that live like this, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we do not want to live like that. We want to follow Peter's prescription in 1 Peter 1.13, be holy because God is holy. We want to be holy in our conduct, in our lives, because God himself is holy. So what does it look like to be holy? Well, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, so those who have life in the Spirit, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Can you say that you have crucified the flesh, its passions and desires? Do you see evidence in your life that you are striving to crucify the old man and to walk not in the flesh, but according to the Spirit? So much of the Christian life is not, it's not never sinning. But the question is, what's your aim? What's your goal? What's the condition of your heart? What are you striving after? Are you striving to become formed into the image of Jesus? Remember, God's highest goal for you, according to Romans 8, 29, is you to be conformed to the image of Christ. Can you say, based on the evidence of your life, that you are seeking to be conformed to the image of Jesus by crucifying the old man? Categorically, he's been crucified. But in the day-to-day walking out, are you seeking to crucify the old man? If so, you will see victory over sin in your life. And that is an evidence that the Spirit is at work in your life. The third thing as it relates to us at Aletheia Church is boldness to witness. As we go through the book of Acts, you are going to see a phrase repeated many times times. In Acts chapter 4, you are going to see Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, dot, 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 when they saw the boldness of Peter, they were amazed. So by being filled with the Spirit, he spoke with boldness. Other believers, all filled with the Spirit, they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Saul, once he was converted and took on the name Paul, as you know him mainly, was filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, speaking boldly in the Lord. A Spirit-filled person or church will be bold in proclaiming the truth, the gospel, and standing against error. Do you truly desire to be filled with the Spirit? If you're looking for evidence, you have to ask yourself, when is the last time you boldly declared that Jesus was the Christ? When is the last time you you took a stand for truth in the world? For that is an evidence of being filled with the Spirit. And I don't say this to like categorically shame you and to say, no, you're not a Christian, but it just says, hey, this is one of the evidences you should be looking for in your life. And if you don't see it, then you know there's more room for filling in your place. 
Because I understand it's hard to take a leap of faith and to trust that God will be faithful when you step out and say to someone, hey, I love you, but you're wrong. You need Jesus. And here's why you need Jesus. Because you've sinned against a holy God. And if you don't repent of your sin, you will be forever separated from him in a place that Jesus spoke about many times called hell. Jesus is the only way. For he said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to God except through him. I understand it's hard to say those things. But a person filled with the Spirit, guess what? When you're filled with the Spirit, guess what you're not full of? Fear. Right? If you're full of the Spirit, you will not be full of fear. And that's why Paul can say to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We're not crazy. We're not crazy for believing in Jesus. And we are to boldly proclaim this truth to everyone. And man, it has been awesome hearing your stories recently. We've been doing the one campaign where, where people have been, they're one person. There's one person that God has put on their heart and their mind. And God has said to them, this is the person that I want you to pray for, invest in, and share the gospel with over the coming year. And man, God is already at work just in the, in the few weeks of doing this. I was sitting down at a table this week with my friend from Saudi Arabia who just finished his Ph.D. He can't decide if he's a Muslim or an atheist. He's somewhere in between. But man, we were sitting there in Starbucks in Gainesville, and we had the Word of God open, and we were walking through the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel was being proclaimed right there. And as it's being proclaimed right there, Two women in a loving, committed relationship come and sit at the next table about 18 inches from us. And we are deep in the heart of the gospel at this point. And I could tell that they were incredibly uncomfortable once they sat down and realized what was happening 18 inches from them. But yet, as we kept talking, I could tell they were listening. Because all I was doing was proclaiming the goodness and the glory of Jesus. And how he calls all men to himself and he's ready to forgive. And they listen. Kevin was out on campus this week with some guys. A Chinese professor sees Kevin with three college students talking about the gospel and says, I'm looking for the truth. Do you have it? Why? We weren't shouting from the rooftops. We were just out in public sharing the gospel, talking about Jesus, and God will bring people along your path. We cannot be afraid to speak about the goodness and the glory of Jesus outside these walls. And if we are faithful in doing so, God will continue to draw men and women into his kingdom. God is calling men and women to himself. The question is, do we want to be a part of that work? And we have said here at Aletheia Church that we long to see God move in the hearts and lives of people in that way and to see a harvest brought into the kingdom. To close out our service, we're going to get a little Pentecostal on you. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and invite the band up. All right? Now I'm going to say this. You are under no obligation to participate. But... Here's the thing. 
I've asked some people to be willing to pray. We're about to enter into communion, but in, in, in this kind of five-minute span between now and communion, we're just going to ask you, we want you to ask this question. I'm going to ask you this question. Do you desire to be filled with the Spirit? And if that's a desire of yours, we're just going to have people up here praying. I promise, unless, unless the Holy Spirit just drops in the room in a very unexpected way, it won't get crazy. All right? But we'll give him the freedom to do so, though he likes to do things in order according to the Scriptures. But we want to pray over you. We just, if you want more of God in your life, if you want more of his Spirit, more evidence of him working in your life, just come up here and ask for prayer. You don't have to tell us what it is, but just by coming up, we will just pray over you, and we will lay a hand on you, and we will just pray that God's Spirit would fill you. And if this is for salvation, that you want to follow Jesus, we can pray that, that you would be initially filled with the Spirit. But if it's an area of sin in your life that, that you need victory over, let us pray that you would be filled with the Spirit so that you could overcome that sin. And maybe it's because you're scared to share with your one, and, and, and you're just... You just need fear to do it. Because I promise you, if God has put that one in your life, for many of you, God has prepared their heart for you to share. I just heard a story yesterday of a girl who had been, been a Christian for six months. She had wanted to bring her sister to church. She had been praying for her sister, and she just didn't have the guts to share Christ with her in any way, shape, or form. She goes, Pastor, you've got to come over and do it. So the pastor goes over there. He, he explains the gospel to her, and she becomes a Christian right there. And she says, she says, I've got to go tell my sister about this. The one who wouldn't tell her. And she comes out and she goes, okay, tell her. And she goes, you've got to come follow Jesus. She goes, I know, I've known him for six months. And she's like, and you didn't tell me? Like you've known about this? You know this Jesus? You've been rescued from sin, death, and hell and for six months and you haven't bothered to tell me at all? You're the closest person in your life. God is preparing their hearts. But he's calling you to be bold, to take a step of faith, and to share.